Good morning. It is a joy. It's a gift for me to be with you this morning. It's been a while. I was here uh, in the fall. I got to speak at the men's uh, retreat last fall. We walked through the prophet Ezekiel, and then I got to come and preach to you back when you were downstairs waiting for this upstairs space to be completed in its renovations. And let me say, it looks great. This is a beautiful space to come and worship in. It's also a joy just to speak with you because you all have been such great partners in the work of the kingdom here in the Washington, D.C. area. Arlington Baptist Church has been a true co-laborer with Reformed Theological Seminary. Your pastor, Mike Law, has become a good friend. I got to uh, have the privilege of advising his thesis last year and getting to know him better. And it's just been a joy to see what he's doing uh, through the ministry of Arlington Baptist. It's also been a joy to have Becky Ching uh, running our library here at the seminary and um, making those resources available for our students. I can't tell you how important that is for seminary students to have access to a library that works. And uh, having Becky there has been a joy and having Jason be there with her as well has been a joy. So it's a pleasure to be with you and to see many faces um, uh, who we already know, who I already know. Um, from the past. So let us open in our Bibles now and turn our eyes and our attention to the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. And we're just going to read a small part of this section. This is a larger section about the call of Isaiah. Now you might say, wait a minute, isn't the call of Isaiah in Isaiah 6? And I'd say, absolutely. But here he's actually receiving his second call. And you have to pay attention sometimes with the prophets. They don't always tell you what they're doing. Um, but if you notice, for instance, in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 3, he's called to be a watchman. And the Lord says, you are to watch for the coming judgment and discipline of Jerusalem. And then in Ezekiel 33, he's called to be a watchman again. And the Lord says, this time you are to watch for the coming restoration and the new heavens and new earth, the day of the Lord that is to come. Well, Isaiah has the same kind of thing, but as is often the case in Hebrew poetry, they don't always tell you what's going on, so you have to kind of look closely at the words, and the words sort of tell you what's happening. But he's just been called to preach a new message to Jerusalem. Not the old message, but a new message. And so this is how he responds. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we receive your word, we pray that you would bless us in our response to it. We don't, um, we don't presume to understand everything that's in it. We know your word is true. We know that it's inerrant. We know that in places it's more plain and in other places it might be more shrouded. Help us to understand through the power of the Spirit. Help us to come to it as we just prayed in that song, Speak, O Lord, with the spirit of humility. Let us sit underneath your counsel Help us resist the temptation to stand over it in judgment because we have no place of standing. We have no place to judge your word. Let us stand under it and be formed by it because you are God and we are not. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 
So in this text that we just read, Isaiah 46 through 8, we're getting a restating of the vision that the Lord has in store for his people. Isaiah, Isaiah ben Amos, the 8th century prophet, is speaking prophetically about a time that is to come. He's, an, he's anticipating his time, a time when his people and the people of the Lord are wondering, where is God? They're questioning, is God really with us? Are, are, are we on the right side of history, we might say today? Or rather, we could put it another way, is there a right side of history? And the prophet has given this call in the midst of this, cry out. And if you remember how Isaiah 40 begins, what is he to cry out? Comfort, comfort my people. You see, for the first 39 chapters of this book, Isaiah 1 through 39, Isaiah ben Amos is dealing with this particular problem, and it's the problem of Assyria. Assyria is a great empire, and they're a cruel empire. They're, they're known for their cruelty and their, their rigor in battle. They like to publish the things that they do to the people that they conquer so that others will be afraid, and hopefully, it's kind of a psychological warfare in a way, hopefully surrender before the Assyrian army even reaches their gates. And Isaiah is preaching that as Assyria is coming across the countryside and they seem surely to end up in Jerusalem, Isaiah is saying, here's the trick. Assyria is the tool of God. He's bringing judgment to the nations. That while the Assyrian king may worship his Assyrian gods, the actual God who is guiding the Assyrian king is our God, is the Lord. He thinks he acts alone, but he doesn't. The Lord is guiding him. And he's bringing judgment and discipline even to Judah, even to Jerusalem. And yet you remember how that section ends. We have Sennacherib, the great Assyrian emperor, come up. And what does he do? He overstates his case against Jerusalem. He says, who is Yahweh that he will protect you? Is he better than the gods of Oh, I don't know these other countries. Arpad, Hephavayim. Is he better than those gods who I've already conquered? Who is Yahweh, this Yahweh of Jerusalem? And by overstating his case, the Lord decides, okay, now you've gone too far. Right? And Sennacherib is turned away at the gates of Jerusalem over the course of a night where it seems as if Jerusalem's about to fall. By the same time the next day, Sennacherib has been driven home where his sons kill him and Esarhaddon rises up after him because he overstated his claim. The, the tool of God's judgment went too far. And we think, well, listen, Jerusalem's now been saved. They've been, they've been protected from this coming threat. Apparently, the discipline isn't going to happen like we thought it would. And yet what happens? Hezekiah falls into the same temptation of trusting in other nations instead of trusting in the Lord. He shows the Babylonian envoys his treasuries in Isaiah 39. And Isaiah returns to him and says, everything that was said of Assyria has now been postponed to Babylon. And that's the end of Isaiah 1 through 39. Hezekiah has been judged. He's been shown to be wanting, even though he is a faithful king. I think we can, ex we can expect to find Hezekiah, excuse me, yeah, Hezekiah in the new heavens and new earth. We find, however, even still, like so many in the Old Testament, he shifts and shares his allegiance to the Lord with allegiance to human carnal ends. And so 
the judgment is postponed. The, the, the purification of Israel where her sins, as we just prayed earlier, which were once scarlet, will now become white as snow. Where the faithless city will become the faithful daughter in, in Isaiah 1. All of that has now been postponed down to Babylon. Babylon will be the new tool of God's judgment and discipline. And then you have this break between Isaiah 39 and 40. You have this break, and as we pick up in Isaiah 40, we get this message of hope. Comfort, comfort my people. Your sins have been paid for. Your iniquity has been atoned for. The Lord is coming for you. He's coming to get you back. Now this is the message that's to be declared to the people of God. This is the passage that begins with this new calling of the prophet. Whereas before in Isaiah 6, he was told to go preach to the hard-headed people, to the stiff-necked people, a message of judgment. Now he's told to bring them a message of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people. There will be a voice that's crying out, make straight in the desert the way of the Lord, because who's coming back from Exile. Who's coming back from the desert? God's people. And they're coming in from the east, just like they did in the time of Joshua. They're coming in to the sanctuary land, the promised land, and a harbinger is coming before them saying, make straight in the, wezzard, in the, in the desert the way of the Lord. Lift up the valleys, flatten down the hills. Here comes the kingly messianic parade. Of course, we know that this is fulfilled in John the Baptist. He's the harbinger who comes before the king. Remember where he is? He's right there on the Jordan, right around the corner from Jericho, right at the eastern entry into the land. And what is he pro pro uh, proclaiming? Make straight in the desert the way of the Lord. And as Jesus comes, he says, Behold, here's the king who I was the harbinger for. Here's the greater one for whom I am the lesser. Here's the one who baptizes with the Spirit of God, not just with water. And of course, that grand entry finds culmination in the event that many around the church are celebrating this morning, Palm Sunday. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem to the praises and the shouts of Hosanna, to the palms being laid down before him, and yet he comes in like Solomon. He comes in on a donkey, the true son of David, the true righteous pilgrim to Jerusalem, and those shouts of Hosanna will become, within a week, shouts of crucify Him. You see, Isaiah is anticipating all this to come, this day of the Lord, this restoration, when the Son of David will come back, and that darkness, that gloom that's been over the northern kingdom, and has been over Jerusalem in exile, will finally end in sunrise. That the light will finally shine again. Can you believe it, people of God, says Isaiah to Jerusalem? It won't be a message of judgment and discipline. It will be a message of comfort. Comfort, my people. I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. Now, there are two voices here. There are two voices in this passage that we read today. And there is a little bit of indeterminacy, as we say in Old Testament studies. There's a little bit of confusion or ambiguity about where the two voices begin and end. One voice says this, and it's an imperative. It says, cry, proclaim, preach, go out. Right? And then you have the prophet say, and I say, what shall I cry? 
So there's two different voices. One is the heavenly voice, proclaim, shout. And one is the prophet's voice, what should I cry? I mean, honestly, what shall I cry? You've already given me a call back in Isaiah 6. You said go out and cry a message of judgment to these people who are stiff-necked and hard-headed, whose foreheads are like flint. It's so hard they don't receive anything. What am I to cry out? Has the word of God changed? Now it raises a question. There's two ways to interpret. Now in your ESV, which we read this morning, notice they put the end quotes after what shall I cry? And yet, interestingly, in the Hebrew Bible, and this actually shows up quite a bit in poetry, there's no quotes, right? There's, there's no punctuation. It'd be wonderful if we knew exactly where the prophet's quote ends and where something else starts up, but we don't. So it raises the question, this whole part about the grass withering and the flowers fading, is this the heavenly voice? Is this the prophetic voice? Or is this some kind of narrator's voice? I want to focus on the first two options. I think that third option confuses the issue a little bit. And, and, and if we say it's a narrator's voice, we're really saying this is some kind of heavenly voice. So it could be something like this. The voice says, cry. The prophet says, well, what should I cry? And the voice comes back and says, you should cry this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord is forever. The only problem with that interpretation, which is the interpretation it appears to be of the ESV, is that we've already gotten what the message that he's supposed to cry is. The message is, comfort, comfort my people. And it seems to be switching over to another message about the word of the Lord. Okay? Now, the second one would be this. The prophet Isaiah has been told, cry. He says, what should I cry? I've already been given a call. The grass withers, the flowers fade. I know all these things change. Even Israel will go into exile and will, will pass away, will fall into the judgment of the Lord. But I've already been given God's word, and God's word doesn't change. You see, in this case, the prophet is kind of resisting the second call. Now, some of us would say, but the prophet's faithful. Isaiah is a faithful prophet. Why would he resist the call of the Lord? And yet, I think if we pause for a moment, we think about other prophetic calls that we see in the Bible, we actually see this continuing pattern, and the pattern is this. The Lord comes and says, go proclaim my word. Go do this thing I've called you to do. And the prophet responds, well, I don't know if I'm the right guy for that job. Right? The prophet goes, if I was you, God, I probably wouldn't choose me. Perhaps you've even felt this before. When you realize the call that the Lord's put on your life, and then all of a sudden, all of your failures, all of your weaknesses all of your greatest lacks come flooding into your mind and you say, I don't think I'm the one for this. How about that guy down the road? How about that woman down the road? Maybe they're the one who's supposed to do this work. Think about Moses. It's called to be the great deliverer, the great prophet of the Old Testament, to go to Pharaoh himself, the king of the greatest empire of his time, and to say, let my people go. And what does Moses say? He says, I don't think I'm the right guy for the job. Actually, the Hebrew is fun. He says that my tongue is fat. He goes, I have something going on here. I don't know if it's that I have a speech impediment, or we should say this. We don't know if he's saying he has a speech impediment. We don't know if he's just saying he's not very eloquent. Okay. But he goes, I'm not the right person for the job. And the Lord says, I'm going to account for your problem. 
I'll give you Aaron. He can be your mouthpiece. I'm going to give you these signs, the leprosy on the hand and the staff that turns into a serpent. These will make up for your lack. It's actually often preached as if this is a weakness in Moses. I'd actually argue that it may even show that Moses is the right guy for the job. Notice when Isaiah gets called the first time, what does he do? He's drawn into the heavenly throne room. He's worshiping in the temple. All of a sudden, the veil between heaven and earth grows thin. And he sees that what he's looking at is not the Holy of Holies, but he's looking at the throne room of God and the Lord's glory in his robe is filling the temple. Isaiah knows what's about to happen. You don't go into the throne room of God unless you're about to get a prophetic call. And what does he say? I am unclean, and I am amongst an unclean people. He instantly recognizes, I'm not the man for the job. And what does the Lord do? He sends down the seraph who takes that burning coal. Interestingly, by the way, notice he's passing. The seraph is going from the heavenlies into the temple itself, grabbing something out of the temple, right, in the earthly realm, coming over to Isaiah and touching it to his lips. And the image is this, lit, lit, is this image of soldering. You're like um, cauterizing his lips. There's like an infection in his mouth of uncleanness. And the coal atones for it and accounts for his uncleanliness and covers over it. And then the prophet, the Lord says, who will go for us? And what does the prophet say? Here I am. I wasn't, I wasn't appropriate for the task before, but you've now made up for the problem. You've made up for the lack. Interestingly, Jeremiah seems to resist his call because he says, I'm too young. And the Lord goes, don't you know I've been forming you from the womb for this job? And saying he's too young too, he might be saying he's younger than 13. Okay, the age of majority, at least at the time of Jesus, is 13. We don't have a biblical text that tells us what that would mean. But the idea of someone reaching a point where they can make decisions... They're, they're, they're a man now. They've become a man is around the age of 13. It's possible that Jeremiah, like the king that he serves with, Josiah, is young, really young, like a kid. And the Lord says, I've been forming you from the womb for this job. I would even argue that when Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners, he's not being a model for us. He's not saying, this is how you should humbly act. Right? It's claimed to be the chief of sinners like I do. That's a good thing to do. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't think that's actually what Paul's saying. I think Paul is saying, no, literally, I am the only person alive who has gathered armies together to kill the body of Christ, the beloved bride of Jesus, the church. I am the only one. I am actually literally the worst guy alive. I was born out of time. And yet I'm the one God chose for this work. I think he's saying, I'm not the appropriate one. I'm not the right guy. I'm not the perfect candidate. And yet the Lord has made up for it by the blood of Christ. So with that backdrop, here we have Isaiah receiving his second call. And the voice says, go out and proclaim. And if this is right, and I kind of think, tend to think this is the proper interpretation. He says, what shall I cry out? Everybody changes. I know that. But the word of God stands forever. You've given me a message. What's the new message? And what the Lord is going to reveal in the coming chapters, the new message is this. My judgment and my discipline is always complemented by my grace. The salvation that I bring to my people always has a flip side of the coin, and that's judgment. But the judgment always has the flip side of the coin, which is the salvation and the grace. 
Remember, I'm a God who both loves grace and loves mercy, and yet I love justice, and you need me to love both. You need me to judge oppression and to bring it to an end, and that's why the exile has to happen. And yet you need me to be a God of mercy who forgives so that the restoration can happen. By the way, the same is true for us today. We often focus on grace as if it's the better attribute of God. But let me point out to you, we need the grace, but we need the justice too. We need God's just character to be true so that the world does not descend into chaos. We don't want a world that looks like the world of the judges. We don't want a world that is, 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 is reigned over by those who exploit and oppress. When the Lord comes down to Sodom and Gomorrah, He doesn't come down and say, I'm coming to judge the victimless crimes of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, I've heard the outcry. I've heard the oppression. And I'm coming to make it right. You see, Isaiah is to learn that God is not merely a God of judgment, but He's also a God of grace. So I think the quote should extend to the end of the passage that we read this morning. I think this is the prophet saying, flowers fade, grass withers. When the Lord blows on it, that's the blow of judgment. When that hot wind of the eastern wind comes, just like it came over Jonah's little vine, and it withers up and it dies. That's the word of judgment, but it's not judgment just unto condemnation for the people who are the people of God. It is discipline unto life, unto comfort, comfort my people. And this is our hope too. Notice in either case, this statement that the grass withers and the flowers fade, this is true. This is true for us today. We even see this naturally, even at the level of the metaphor. This is naturally true, right? The weather changes. Yesterday was sunny and warm, and I was downtown and got to enjoy the cherry blossoms with my family. And today is kind of overcast and sort of cold. Weather changes. You can imagine a time in Israel before the internet and television, before handheld devices. You don't have a lot to look at. So what do you spend your time looking at? You look at the sky. That's one of the few things that changes in front of you daily. And you can look at the weather and you know it comes and it goes. Sometimes it's a hot wind coming out of the desert. Sometimes it's the cool breeze coming off of the Mediterranean. But the weather changes. We change. It's funny, I'm sometimes struck. I'm 44 years old and I'm sometimes struck by how I'm changing and yet not realizing that I'm changing. I, I still think of myself as a young man. And yet, I, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, I was, out in, um, I was out in L.A. I was speaking at a conference out there, and I was staying at the Holiday Inn. And, and the, the Holiday Inn, you know, the, uh, the, the, the stay, whatever, my, my reservation came to an end. But I still had a couple of hours before the plane flight back to Washington, D.C. And I remember I was checking out, and I was at the desk, and the concierge was there, a young woman. And I said, well, I've got a few hours. You know, where, where should I go? I was in Fullerton, so just south of like in Orange County. I was like, where should I go? She's like, um, you know where you, you should go to Laguna Beach. That's a really nice place. You'd really like that. You can walk around. There's a lot of stuff there. And then the other young man behind her who's in, the de- who's in like the resource center back there, turns out he leans back in the chair and he says, no, don't send him to Laguna Beach. That's where all the old people go. <laughs> and no joke, she goes like this. Um, no, 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 he'll like it. 
And I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute, I, I thought we were peers. I thought, I thought we were in here together. And she's like, no, that old guy, he'll like it. He'll like Laguna Beach. See, we change. Sometimes we don't even know that we're changing. Things change politically. Nations rise up and they fall. When I was a child, we used to do nuclear attack, nuclear invasion drills at our house where we'd get, our, our school rather, where we'd get under our desks and we'd learn about where we should stand in door frames. Times change. It's kind of silly now to even think of something like that. Culturally, things change. This has perhaps never been more clear than now. Movie stars and celebrities, famous and powerful people who once seemed to run their industry are now pariahs due to changing views of authority, changing views of sexuality, even changing views of what it means to be a human. What was once acceptable and even praised is now outcast and rejected. But as the prophet says, what does not change is the word of a God who, as we prayed earlier this morning wonderfully a God who is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being wisdom power holiness justice goodness and truth those are the words of the Westminster Confession on who is God actually the real question is what is God interestingly what is what is the thing that God is why should the prophet declare the God's word why should any of us declare God's word Because God is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in all of his attributes. Because his word is our anchor in this life. His word is our guide in this life. And his word is the agent of change in this life. And that's how I'd like to spend the rest of this morning in discussion. I just want to talk briefly about how God's word is our anchor And it's our guide, and it is the agent of change. It is the change agent in this life. So let's start with God's word as an anchor. God's word is our plumb line. It's the the thing that anchors us to reality. It is the basis for all truth and all interpretation in the world. And without it, we are lost in a sea of relativity and confusion. Without God's word, we are lost in a sea of relativity and confusion. Think about the human problem when it comes to knowing anything. We often talk about the human problem being one of sin, and that's true. So we have the problem of our fallenness, right? That sin, having entered into our hearts and our minds, has now darkened. It's, it's taken something that used to be directed heavenward and made it directed in a perverted way earthward. As the Apostle Paul says, though, even though they knew God, they didn't honor God. And as a result of that, their thoughts became futile. Their hearts became dark. In theology terms, we talk about these being the noetic, and noetic related to knowledge or knowing. The noetic effects of sin. That sin doesn't just make us do bad things. Sin actually makes us think wrongly. It breaks our brains. So that's a problem, our fallenness. But that's not the only problem we have. We also have our finitude. Remember how God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable? We are not. We're not infinite. 
we're finite. Notice this, that even before the fall, when Adam and Eve are in the garden, can they then just go do whatever they want? No, God still has to come and reveal to him, to them rather, his character. That he has to come and say, this is how the garden works. And this is your role in it. You're to fill it and to subdue it. You're to expand it. You're to work in it. You're to have children. You're to um, tend to the animals, even naming them, showing your rule over them, subduing nature by naming animals. Okay, there's, there's a bit of authority to say, this is a cat and this is a dog. There's some authority happening there. You're deciding certain things. Okay? God still has to reveal to Adam and Eve how to live in the garden. God has to show them how reality works because they are finite, whereas he is infinite. And as finite beings, it means that we are in the system. Okay, so bear with me for about two minutes. If you're interested in philosophy, this will work. If not, just I'll come back in a second. You can think about what you're doing later in the day today. Um, just kidding, don't do that. Okay, so think about what it means to be in the system. Okay, imagine we lived our whole lives just within this sanctuary, right? And someone were to say something like, where is this sanctuary located? We wouldn't know, right? Because we're just in this sanctuary. All we know is what's in the sanctuary. For someone to tell us where the sanctuary is vis-a-vis the United States or the Washington, D.C. area or Arlington, someone would have to come from outside the sanctuary, right? Because while we're inside of it, we're in the system. This means we're finite. We're limited. We need someone who has a broader perspective than us to locate where we are for us if all we'd ever done was lived in this sanctuary. There's something true about this in human knowledge that even non-Christian philosophers acknowledge. As a matter of fact, it was in the 1960s, just just a little north of the Washington, D.C. area, up at Johns Hopkins, where there's a great gathering of all of the structuralist philosophers in the world. And the structuralists had this idea, think about Einstein and uh, some of the great mathematicians and physicists of the early 20th century. They had this idea that if we get all of our theories together, if we can show how everything's connected, we can arrive at a state of totalization. Okay, this is the word they use. We can totalize our knowledge. We can know everything there is to know about the world. Or you've maybe heard this phrase. We can come up with a unified theory of life, the universe, and everything. Okay? This unified theory idea would draw together physics and math and biology and chemistry and interpretation so that everything was drawn together and we'd say, now we know. Now we know how the world works. And one of the plenary speakers at this gathering up in Johns Hopkins was a Frenchman named Jacques Derrida. And Jacques Derrida was known as being a great anthropologist and structuralist who was trying to do this unified theory. But over the course of his studies, he had come to a conclusion. And that's this. That idea of totalization is impossible. Because while we're gathering together all of these different pieces of information like E equals MC squared and Newtonian physics and, and uh, you know, the, uh, the Pythagorean theorem, you know, think about all the things that we learn in life. As we're putting all of these together, we're getting this network of knowledge and yet we still don't know where this network of knowledge exists in terms of reality. In other words, as we learn more things like this idea that gravity can bend light Okay, we learned that, and all of a sudden raises a bunch of new questions, so that now we have more questions than we had before we knew that gravity could bend light. Okay? So he stands up and he goes, this structuralism 
this whole idea of building this network of ideas so that we can know everything, this doesn't work. And he began what's now called post-structuralism, where people realize that's a silly idea to try to get a knowledge of everything. All we can do, all we can do, says Jacques Derrida, is just look at our little part of the universe and say, I think I understand something about that. That's the best we can hope for. Actually, Derrida's final response was this. The goal of life is not to know. The goal of life is just to play. So since we can't know anything, let's just play. Or maybe you've heard the, the joke about the guy who drives up and, and he sees a man in a parking lot underneath the light and he's staring down at the place where the light's shining and the guy says, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, I lost my keys. And the man says to the other man, well, did you lose your keys there underneath the light? And he goes, no, this is just where the light is better. <laughs> Jack Derridoff said, that, that's what all of our human knowing is about. Because we're in the system. We don't know how to see the system as a whole. Okay, now back to Isaiah. God's word is our anchor because while everything's changing and we in our finitude are stuck down in the details of the change, God comes from outside of the system. The one who said, let there be light, can come and tell us about light. The one who said, this is how you ought to live, this is how I've made the universe to operate, has now stepped into the universe and revealed himself truthfully. As a matter of fact, if we take the Bible seriously, the only way that any human, Christian or non, can know anything that is true, the only way that can happen is if God has revealed himself to humanity. Otherwise, we're just lost in a sea of confusion. How do we make sense of the world if we're stuck in the warp and the weft of the waves? God speaks through it and reveals himself. You see, we need someone who does see it all, who sees the whole creation to reveal truth to us. It is not just our sin that causes us to need God's word. It's our creatureliness. Notice that even in the Garden of Eden, as we've mentioned, even in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve couldn't understand the garden fully unless God revealed it to them. So God's word is our anchor. That's a grand vision. It even goes so far to say, as your skeptical friend who says, I can never believe in a God like the God of the Bible, you have to realize this, that even as you're talking to them, they are trusting in and, and assuming a God who reveals himself. When they talk about their loves and their hopes and their fears and their desires, anytime they talk about meaning in this world, they're assuming that there is a meaning beyond the frame that they see around them, beyond the world just around them. They're assuming a transcendence. One philosopher says that non-Christians live off of the borrowed capital of the biblical faith. They act as if they don't believe it, but they actually believe it in their assumptions. And that's also what Paul means when he says they know God, but they don't honor him in Romans 1. So God's word is an anchor, but it's not just an anchor. Okay? I don't want to stop with that. This is not just a philosophical treatise. Okay? It's not just the idea that everything changes, but God's word is stable and therefore we can trust it. God's word is more than that. That's why doing theology at Reformed Theological Seminary or in Arlington Baptist Church, doing theology is not just about memorizing theological proofs. Theology is a personal endeavor. 
God's not just an anchor. His word is not just an anchor. It is actually a guide. In other words, when you are in need of justice, or when you are in need, as the prophet says this morning, of comfort, comfort my people, when you're in need of divine presence, when you're in need of encouragement, God's word provides us with a personal presence, the personal account of God's perspective on our world. You think about a soldier at war, you know, in, in the foxhole, pulling out of his pocket the letter written by his love back home. He's not going there for data. He's not going there just for more information. There's something about the closeness of the letter. There's a personal relationship there. In other words, God's Word does not just tell us about God, it actually provides us with communion and fellowship with God. Go back and read the psalm, Psalm 119. You may know it as the longest psalm in the Old Testament, the longest psalm in the Bible. Go back and read it. It's actually this extended 23 stanza poem about the Word of God. And if you read what the psalmist says, you'll notice he says a few things that are quite interesting. He doesn't say, read the word of the Lord and it will give you good information. Okay? He doesn't say, go to the word of the Lord when you need to know stuff and you can get your answers. Though he, he says that, but he doesn't spend a lot of time there. Instead, when he talks about this, the word of the Lord, and he calls it the Torah, okay, which means instruction or law, he calls it the statutes, he calls it the rules, he calls it the word, he calls it the scriptures. He says, when I go there, it's like a tired pilgrim who's eating food, who's being fed. Or, or when I wake up in the middle of the night, as I know you do too sometimes, and, I, and I've got that despair that comes in the darkest times of the night, God's word is there and he comforts me. And when I'm afraid, he fortifies me. And when I rejoice, he gives me the words. And when people attack me, he defends me. Even Jewish scholars would say that the psalmist in Psalm 119 is intuiting something about the word of God, that it is personal. That it's not just a manuscript on a scroll. It's not just words on a page, but that there's a person behind it. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what the gospel writer John is relying upon when he says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And in the Old Testament, that means the word, that means the Bible. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and walked amongst us. You see, John's taking the same intuition that the psalmist had in Psalm 119. He's saying, this word is not just info, it's not just informational structure, okay? It's not just ideas. This is God present with us. And in the Old Testament, it came to us via the prophets. Okay, now I'm switching over to the author of Hebrews. In the Old Testament, it came to us by the prophets, but as the author of Hebrews tells us, now it comes to us in the Son. He's the perfect representation of the Godhead. Look in Colossians 2, 9 and 10. You can't say much more about Jesus than this. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of how much rule and authority? Some rule and authority, bits of it? No. All rule and authority. You can't say much more about Jesus than that. Look at the author of Hebrews. 
Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, not a partial imprint, not just a bit of the imprint of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, God's word anchors us in reality, but it also provides the proper personal guide in our lives. That is Jesus Christ. The word speaks to the presence and the comfort of God. When we speak the word, we can, we can trust and know that God is present, that Jesus is present. So God's word is an anchor. It's, it's, it's a guide. But it's also a change agent. It's an agent of change. I want you to think about it this way. God's word is like a fire. Think about fire. You need fire. It keeps you warm. It cooks your food. You can use it for making things. And yet, you're careful not to play around the fire, right? We tell our children when we put the fire in the fireplace, we say, be careful. And they're all, of course, instantly transfixed by it. Humans are all innately pyromaniacs. Our children want to go and play with the fire, and we say, you don't play with the fire. It's important, it's good, it's even needful for life, but you treat it with reverence, you treat it with awe. God's word is necessary for life too, but it's also surprisingly powerful. If you're a counselor, or you've spent any time in counseling, or read popular magazines about counseling, you've probably heard people ask this question, do people really change? I can even remember sitting around with a bunch of clinical counselors who teach at Reformed Theological Seminary and then commenting on this idea. Sometimes you wonder, do people really change? And the Bible, and as these counselors would have said too, the Bible says yes. People do change. Even with your habits, even with your besetting sins, even with those old wounds from abuses long past, you can change. You can even change extravagantly. As a matter of fact, where once you may have been living a life against God, you may have been living a life that turns your face away from the Lord, you may have mocked Him, you may have made fun of Him and recommended others who did the same, you can still be loved by Him. Where you may have once experienced alienation from God and the world that He has made, you can be reconciled to Him. Where you once lived only for yourself, you can now live again. Notice the way that the Apostle Paul puts it. He doesn't say, I used to be one way, but the Lord has changed me. Okay. He says the change actually that took place is much more radical than that. In Galatians 2.20, he goes along these lines. He says, as a matter of fact, the change is so drastic. I'm paraphrasing Paul now. As a matter of fact, it's so drastic, I wouldn't even say I'm the same person I used to be. As a matter of fact, that person is dead. That person has passed away. That person was an enemy of the Lord, and that person received the judgment that they deserve as an enemy of God. They're now dead. But how are they dead? They're not dead in the final judgment. They're not dead because of some kind of invasion from a foreign nation. They're dead because they are dead in Christ. You see, all of us have to be judged for our sins. Because God is a just judge, and that's good. You have done oppressions, and you deserve judgment as a result of them. And God has laid out for all of humanity two ways for that judgment to be meted out. 
It can be meted out in the final judgment, the final global cosmic judgment that comes in the new heavens and new earth as the Lord is purifying the earth. He's removing the oppressors. He's removing the exploiters. He's removing those who have brought affliction and pain and suffering to the world. Or it can be judged in Jesus Christ. You know that, right? When Jesus is on the cross, he is not only starting to be the first fruit of the resurrection in three days. He's being the first fruits of the final judgment. He is taking upon himself all of the guilt, all of the punishment that the people of God deserve because of their sin. And if you are in Christ, you can know this and be, and be just transformed by it, right? You can know that your sin has been swallowed up in full. There's no more penance to be done. There's, there's no more pilgrimages that you have to go through in order to have your sins forgiven. There's, there's no more kind of you know, flagellating yourself with whips or, or, or even just telling yourself how terrible you are so that maybe you'll earn the salvation, the forgiveness that you've been given. If you are in Christ, your sin is completely and wholly swallowed up in his death on the cross. You can rejoice in that, brothers and sisters. And it should be a consolation to us when we fail. And yet, of course, it's also a wonderful challenge to us, too, to return to the cross daily and to be reminded daily, momently, momentarily, of the salvation that is complete and accomplished in Christ. How did this change happen? This change happens because someone spoke the word of God to you, and you were changed. And you no longer live, but now Christ lives within you. And if you haven't experienced that, brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord. He is offering you salvation. But those who come to him to gain life, we have to die. We have to die to the self. We have to die to the flesh. We die and find life in the spirit. Last time I was here, I had the privilege to speak about Ezekiel 37, where the prophet goes out to these dead bones, and he preaches the word, and the dead bones are, are reconstituted by the word of God, and yet we get this uh, element of the presence of God in the word, because when the spirit comes, attending to the word, what happens? The bodies stand up with new life. You see, we who are in Christ are people of the resurrection, like that army in Ezekiel 37. We're changed by God's word and the spirit attending to it, both at the moment of salvation and also forever after. Let me encourage you in this. If you desire to change in life, return to the word. Seek it not only as your anchor in reality. Seek it as the presence of God with you in the spirit. And seek it as the change agent that truly does change your life. You would be surprised how powerful God's word is as we struggle with our own besetting sins. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that we should always preach the gospel, most often preaching it to ourselves. And that's true. Preach the word of God to yourself. Surround yourself with people who will preach the word of God to you. And you will find incredible strength and power in change. Now I should say, it doesn't always happen the same way. For some of us, change comes like that. You'll have friends who will have been alcoholics, and then they'll stop. They'll stop drinking. They'll live lives of sobriety till the end of their life. You'll have people who struggle with a variety of addictions and struggles and hurtful thoughts and destructive ideations, and they will change in a night. 
And then there will be others who will take the whole course of a lifetime. I would point out to you that even the heroes of the faith we find in the scripture struggled with unbelief and doubt and sin throughout their whole lives. I would actually argue it's not until Abram takes Isaac, Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain that he's actually overcome his desire to bring about the blessings of the covenant through someone else being Ishmael. He's constantly being tempted to bring about uh, you know, the, 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 the heir to the covenant through another child. And it's not till near the end of his life that he finally trusts in the Lord to provide the land. We see Paul wrestling with this thorn in his flesh, whatever that is. We see Peter, who's, who is the, the rock upon which the church is built, struggling with Judaizing later in his ministry. So remember, sanctification, growth in Christ, Christian maturity is measured not in hours or in days. It's measured in lifetimes. But God's word does change you. And it's the hope that we have in this life. Where I work at the seminary, we get to be in the business of training teachers and ministers in the word of the Lord. But you get to do it here in an even more immediate way. You get to be at church on Sunday morning. You get to be in discipleship groups. You get to be parents and siblings and friends of those who desperately need God's word. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. God's word is there for us as an anchor. Without it, we are lost in a sea of confusion. It's also there as a guide. He is our personal guide to draw us to Christ. The word of God draws us to the glorious radiance of God that we have in Christ. And in that, we find true change. We can become the people God has ordained us to be, finding that wholeness, finding that satisfaction that our hearts desire so deeply. Let's give thanks to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this time to you. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to receive it. But everybody here gathered today, Lord, would be drawn to the person of Christ. Dear Lord, if anything in this sermon is untrue or misleading, let it be quickly forgotten. But if there is anything that rightly articulates the teaching of your word, Lord, let it go down deep like a seed in deep, rich soil. And that by the power of the Spirit, we might respond even right now with a song of worship and praise. Dear Lord, as the psalmist prays, we don't just want to be taken out of the pit. We don't just want to be put on firm ground. We want a new song in our mouths. And so we pray for that now, Lord. Through the power of the Spirit, let us lift up a new song of worship. A rejuvenated people, the people of God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.